0: Welcome to the Words Matter Library. I'm Katie Barlow. We are honored and pleased to be joined today by Max Boot. Max is the Gene Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow in National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, a columnist for The Washington Post and a global affairs analyst for CNN. Max is also the author of The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. Max Boot, welcome to Words Matter. Delighted to be here. Uh, We are also joined by another distinguished scholar and thinker. My guest host today is my good friend and comrade, Dr. Gordon Goldstein. His academic and professional career is too voluminous to recount, but Gordon is an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he focuses on global technology, innovation, and geopolitics. Dr. Goldstein is also the author of one of my favorite books, Lessons in Disaster, Mick George Bundy and the Path to War in Vietnam a study of presidential decision-making. It is an amazing case study on how decisions are made at the highest levels of the United States government and how sometimes those decisions are horribly wrong. Brother Gordon, it is great to have you on Words Matter today as my wingman.
1: Wonderful to be here.
0: Before we get to Max's amazing and important book, I want to address the elephant in the living room. We are three middle-aged white guys now, 30, 35 years ago, when we all started consuming public affairs programming, that was not only the rule. The exceptions were very, very few and very, very far between. For every Nina Totenberg and Koki Roberts, there were 10 to 20 Mort Kondrakis and Sam Donaldsons talking over them, shouting them down, and mansplaining both policies, laws, and issues which these women had been covering since those men were in high school. Max, a year ago, December, you wrote an article for Foreign Policy magazine called 2017 was the year I learned about my white privilege. What made you tackle that subject at that moment?
2: Well, I think it was a confluence of factors that made me realize that my previous vantage point on the world was pretty blinkered. I mean, I'd spent years uh, arguing with liberals who said that the Republican Party was catering to racism, and then all of a sudden along comes Donald Trump and the Dog whistle becomes a wolf whistle, and it becomes impossible for me to ignore the fact that yes, there is a substantial portion of the Republican base that very much likes a a leader who bashes people of color. And this was at the same time as we were seeing all those police videotapes of police brutality, making clear that when African Americans talked about uh, the way they had been discriminated against by police, they weren't blowing smoke. This was actually going on. It was horrific. And then, of course, you also had. Uh, the the Me Too moment, the revelations about Harvey Weinstein and and so many other powerful men, which showed, again, that the feminists were absolutely right as well in talking about the way that, that men were abusing women. And I was, you know, throughout most of my life pretty naive about this. I mean, even though I'm an immigrant, I am a white male. And so I tended to live in kind of a privileged bubble. And all these events coming together made me realize, wait a second, I mean there really is something to the liberal critique of our racist and sexist society, which I have been in denial about uh, throughout most of my life as a conservative and a white male.
0: And you say it very well. I I, I want to quote from the the print of the article because I think it it puts it in really succinct terms. You say in the last few years in particular, it has become impossible for me to deny the reality of discrimination – harassment, even violence, that people of color and women continue to experience in modern-day America from a power structure that remains, for the most part, in the hands of straight white males. And it made me think of watching Lindsey Graham at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And here's what Lindsey Graham said during those hearings.
2: I know I'm a uh, single white male from South Carolina, and I'm told I should shut up, but I will not shut up.
0: The question I had is why do white men who've been in a position of power and control for centuries seem to believe that this is a zero-sum game where if things get better for women and people of color and other oppressed groups, things will get worse for them?
2: Well, that's a great uh, question and in some ways you could argue that uh, white people have been borrowing some of the language – that uh, minorities and minority activists have been using for decades, and now white people are trying to pretend they're an oppressed minority, even though they still remain the majority. I mean, to me, this is very blinkered thinking, but I think this is really the underlying dynamic that we're seeing in America, which is responsible for the rise of Trump and the Trumpist movement, which is I think there's a lot of white anxiety out there about the fact that the demographics of our society are changing. By the 2040s, we're going to be a majority minority country. And you're already seeing the rise of women and minorities in Congress, for example, primarily, I would add, on the Democratic side of the aisle. And, you know, this is very threatening to a lot of white people and their anger and suspicion and, and fear is, is fed by Fox News. It's fed by Donald Trump. They have the steady diet of caravans are coming and, uh, you know, multiculturalism is destroying the America you love. And a lot of people actually believe this. And that's the sentiment that Donald Trump is pandering to and a lot of other Republicans are pandering to as well. Another thing, Max, I thought
0: was really important the way you put it in, your, in the initial article was, it's even more pernicious to cling to the conceit so popular among Donald Trump supporters that straight white men are the true victims because their unquestioned position of privilege is now being challenged. Is Trumpism the backlash of not being in power anymore?
2: Well, I think Trumpism is a backlash against the growing number of minorities in America, not just the growing number, the growing power of women and minorities, that the power structure, although still overwhelmingly full of white males, is not quite as full of white males as it was a few generations ago. And remember, Donald Trump talks about making America great again, and he's been asked in the past, well, when was America great? He points to the 1950s, you know, the era when segregation still prevailed, in the southern states, when most women were still at home, not in the workplace. So this is the imagined paradise that Trump and so many of his supporters hark back to and that they imagine that somehow Donald Trump can reverse these socioeconomic trends that have been going on for decades and and change the course of demography and somehow transform America magically into this white paradise that they imagine the 1950s to have been. That's the, that's the kind of moonshine that I think uh, Trump— a lot of Trump supporters are drunk on. And finally on this topic, one of the things that I love about reading your columns and any of your
0: work is that you make me think and you make me come up with something that I wouldn't have come up with had I not read it. And um, I loved how you closed because I have long described the Declaration of Independence as our founding mission statement. Um, And like all mission statements, there is a gap. It's not what we were, it's what we wanted to be. And I like how you tie this important issue of, of white male privilege in America in 2019, back to the founders. And you say, if the Trump era teaches us anything, it's how far we still have to go to realize the unalienable rights of all Americans to enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, regardless of gender, sexuality, religion, or skin color. It made me think, I feel like we might need a super souped up version of the 14th Amendment that sort of corrects those initial words. And um, reading reading you put it in that context made me think, do you you think we can codify those values?
2: Well, I think what we really need to do is not rewrite the the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. I think what we really need to do is to teach people about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And I think this is really a profound question because Donald Trump— is really trying to redefine what kind of society we are and also what American conservatism is all about uh, because he does not believe in the in the kind of creedal conservatism. He does not believe in the idea uh, of America, which is that anybody who believes in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you can become an American equal to anybody who's been here for hundreds of years. He doesn't believe that. He is trying to define our identity in blood and soil terms like these European conservative and fascist movements where you actually have to be a white person with long-standing ties, family ties to the United States to be considered a true American. And that is deeply, deeply threatening to the very foundations of our country, which Donald Trump gives every impression of not understanding.
1: So, Max, help us understand how we've arrived at this place. I remain deeply perplexed that the Republican electorate in 2012 – nominated Mitt Romney, former businessman, private equity executive, centrist governor from Massachusetts as their nominee, and then four years later nominated Donald Trump. What is it that Donald Trump understood about the Republican electorate or what aspect of it did he manipulate to turn the party to such a dramatic reversal?
2: Well, Nobody is more astonished at this than I am, Gordon. I mean, this has been gut-wrenching, soul-crushing. I mean, this has been uh, just such a massive, massive upheaval for our country, but also for me personally, because, you know, I was a Republican my whole life, and I can't imagine how could Republicans possibly nominate somebody as unqualified, as bigoted, uh, as hateful in so many ways as Donald Trump after having nominated people like John McCain and Mitt Romney who, you know, whatever you think of their politics, they're good people. Uh, they're well-intentioned. They're trying to serve the country. And clearly Donald Trump is not serving anybody but himself. And I, I think the— the, the secret of his success is that he, he is a good showman. He is a good salesman. He doesn't know anything about history, politics, economics, the way the U.S. government works. But he knows how to appeal to our baser prejudices and instincts. And I think what he detected is that there is this white backlash among Republican voters, Fox News viewers. Uh, they don't like what's happening in this country. And remember, after 2012, the conventional wisdom in, in, in politics was that Republicans had to reach out to minorities, That was the lesson that so many took away from Mitt Romney's victory. And Donald Trump, you know, God bless him. you got to give him this amount of credit. Uh, You know, he understood, no, I don't actually have to reach out to minorities. I have to just supercharge this base of angry old white people and get them to turn out to the polls. And by doing that, he managed to squeeze out a narrow electoral college victory. So that was was his insight that I think propelled him uh, to the White House. And that's, and that's why he could get away with saying stuff like, you know, calling Mexicans rapists and murderers. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that when I heard that when he was saying that launching his campaign. I thought that would be the kiss of death for him. But it wasn't because it turns out that was actually his selling proposition.
1: In your book you argue that this is evidence of a deeper pattern. You say and I'm quoting from the book, "The history of the Republican Party over the past several decades is the story of moderates being driven out and conservatives taking over and then of those conservatives in turn being ousted by those even further to the right." What what drives this dynamic? Why does this pattern have such consistency?
2: That's a great question. I mean, I think the pattern is there. Why it's there is is a deeper question that's harder to answer. But there is no question that the Republican electorate is being driven farther and farther to the right. If you just look at the polls of voter self-identification, they're getting more and more conservative. And the nature of that conservatism is changing. I mean, it's pretty ironic that Barry Goldwater, who was seen as an extremist in the 1960s, and in many ways he was, by the 1990s, he was on the liberal wing or the libertarian wing of the Republican Party. He was actually seen as kind of a moderate squish. And you've had people like Newt Gingrich uh, and Ted Cruz, who wants to find the right side of the right wing of the Republican Party. They've been left behind by Trump, who is even more blatantly uh, xenophobic and, and, and racist and, and uh, you know, right-wing in ways that they would have never imagined they could be. So this is a race to the right, which I think is, is deeply troubling. But it, it was, you know, it was going on before Trump and he's accelerated and taken it to places where even previous Tea Party type politicians were not willing to go. And Max, you talk about
0: it existed before Trump and in your and my early political and Journalistic and observation careers on this. Um, we saw Pat Buchanan win the New Hampshire primary right. in 1992. And you're a guy who when I, when I read your, your writings, and when I listen to your writings, you're very good at drawing straight lines and at least uh, following the crooked lines in patterns of conservatism. And I'd like to just for a second talk about, as Gordon says, how did we get here? Because that's one of the seminal questions we try to explore on this um, podcast, which is what's the line from that 1992 Buchananism to 2016 Trumpism in terms of hijacking the Buckley movement?
2: I think it's a pretty straight line. I mean, George Wall once uh, wrote something along the lines of, Ronald Reagan's victory in 1980 was Barry Goldwater's victory delayed by 14 years. And I think there's something similar you can say about Donald Trump's victory was Pat Buchanan's victory from 1992. Now, remember, in 1992, when when, when Pat was going on about the culture war in and, and kind of a very hateful and divisive manner— that was seen as being a fringe movement within the Republican Party. But now you've had that flip where the principled conservatives who were appalled by Pat Buchanan, now we are the fringe movement and it's the Buchananites who have taken over. And what Donald Trump has basically added is that although his ideology is pretty similar to Pat Buchanan's, he's also got that celebrity. He's He's an outsized personality. He hosted a TV show. He's got a lot of money. He's got this aura of fame about him. So he's a more charismatic personality than Pat Buchanan. But in terms of their viewpoints, there is an awful lot of overlap.
1: Max, in the book, you describe this, um, quote, astonishing domino effect of Republicans capitulating to Donald Trump and you say quote it is hard to know who is worse trump or his enablers i am inclined to think the latter what's the pattern here why has the why have the why did the dominoes fall so rapidly uh and so consistently
2: well i think republican politicians are showing that in place of principles they have poll numbers and i think they what they've seen is that donald trump has captured the affection of the Republican base he has about 80 to 90% support of the Republican party and they're terrified of that. I mean to to my mind this is a disgrace. I mean we ask our soldiers to go out there and risk their lives for our country, but these Republican politicians will not risk their careers for this country because they're terrified that they will suffer the same fate as Mark Sanford or Jeff Flake. I mean this has been just so disillusioning for me to see people that I respected like Paul Ryan or uh, or, or Marco Rubio or others bending the knee to Donald Trump. That's something I could have never imagined happening, especially after they spoke out against them so strongly in 2016. I mean, if you say that somebody's unqualified to have the nuclear codes, that they're a cancer on conservatism, uh, that, you know, all sorts of horrible things, which are all true, if you say that, you can't then endorse that person for the president. But they did that, or become their energy secretary, or become their energy secretary. Right? No,
0: and and to Gordon's point, which I think is a, a good and important one, one the swiftness of the fall. But also, I loved listening to this as you going through this journey, and I know Gordon's going to take it through your the early part of it in a minute. But in terms of the fall, I've always been a registered Democrat, but I served in a Republican White House for a Republican president and believed in a great deal of the mission not everything and I was a spokesman I wasn't a policy person but I did particularly as we uh, looked at the foreign policy landscape after 911 and I deserve um all of the blame and and uh, uh complicity that one would get serving there but there were things that I much like you didn't see in the party. And a couple of things jumped out at me that I just took took down when you were describing this. And one of them was that there was a willful blindness to racism, that they were really segments of the party that you and I inhabited were not promoting conservatism. They were promoting white nationalism.
2: That's right. And I think that was much more widespread than I realized. I think there was I mean, I think I was pretty naive about what the Republican electorate was looking for because I thought they were looking for, you know, international leadership, uh, cutting taxes, reducing the deficit, kind of a traditional Republican platform or what I imagine to be a traditional Republican platform. But in fact, I think what a lot of them were looking for were, you know, which which candidate is going to protect me from the brown skinned hordes. And I, I, that's, that's a lot of what Donald Trump tapped into.
0: But, you know, the, the George W. Bush and I've talked about it on this podcast a, a couple of times in his denunciation of Trent Lott when he really politically would have been better off going into the 2004 reelect, not jumping into that, things, uh, other things that he did on those issues. Um, and so that was a party that I could feel – I felt at home in. I felt – Trevor Burrus
2: But I think a lot of the Republicans did not like that. They did not appreciate the fact that you had somebody like George W. Bush who was preaching uh, so-called compassionate conservatism who was not denouncing immigrants, who was, you know, not trafficking with racists. I mean, this to, to you and me, this would have seemed like normal, common human decency. This is how a president should behave. But I think a lot of Republicans did not like that. And as well as they didn't like the war in Iraq, they didn't like a lot of things. But I think they did not like the fact that that, uh, that, that President Bush did not play on those prejudices. So what was it? Was it the brilliance of Karl
0: Rove and keeping a coalition together that probably shouldn't have stayed together? Because like I said, you um, – in the positions that you held and I, again, was fortunate to sit in that West Wing, uh, you know, 50 feet from the president's office and I didn't see this in the party – And talk about a willful blindness, I think we had a willful blindness to that racism, both of us. And so just curious, once that got exposed, the underpinnings of the party that you and I had ignored, the fall was quick.
2: Yeah, well, I think that's because the party wasn't what we imagined it was. And I think a lot of it was, in fact, willful blindness on my part, for example, because, you know, I I did not ascribe a lot of importance to things like the Willie Horton ad in 1988 when even George H.W. Bush's campaign – was you know playing on racism or you know Ronald Reagan talking about welfare queens or you know kind of the dirty campaign against John McCain in South Carolina in two thousand, where there was a whisper campaign that he had an African American child. all these things I thought, oh, this is just fringe stuff, and it 's not that significant, but it turns out it was actually pretty significant. I think what 's changed now is that in the past, I would say normal Republican campaigns kind of dog whistled to Racist at campaign time, but then the actual leaders of the Republican Party did not actually govern in a way that uh, xenophobes or racists appreciated, because they tended to govern in a pretty responsible, middle-of-the-road fashion. And I think what Trump has done is he has closed the gap between the campaign rhetoric and the governance, because his governance style is even, you know, way more openly racist and xenophobic than any previous Republican campaign. But you know, he's tapped into a real base of people. Uh, who appreciate that. And, and the way I put it is, I, I would not say that all Republicans are racist by no stretch of the imagination. I would not say that all Trump supporters are racist by no stretch of the imagination. But I, what I would say is that all Trump supporters, the ones who are not racist, don't consider blatant racism to be a breaking point or a reason not to support Donald Trump. And for me, that's a pretty damning indictment right there.
1: Max, let's talk a little bit about your personal journey, because I think it's it's really quite extraordinary. You're an immigrant, and you came to this country uh, at the age of six from Russia in the mid nineteen seventies. Just tell us about that.
2: Well, I, you know, was in fact born in a country that no longer exists and I was able to come here in in no small measure because of neoconservative foreign policy. The Jackson Vanick Amendment sponsored by Senator Henry Scoop Jackson of Washington, great Cold War Democrat which tied economic dealings with the Soviet Union to their willingness to allow Jewish immigration and I'm deeply grateful that he did that over the objections of people like Nixon and Kissinger who thought that morality had no place in foreign policy and because of that I and others were able to come here and you know I grew up and, and assimilated and you know I don't I don't even speak Russian now I mean I became very American and I thought I was very much part of American society I always thought I always saw myself as an American. I've never thought of myself as a as a Russian or an outsider. Americanism has always really been my religion. I'm not even that. I mean, I was bar mitzvahed, but I'm not that religiously Jewish. It's I really, you know, my my faith has been in this country, and and that faith has really been shaken by the events of the last few years. Because, you know, with the rise of Trump and this nativism, you know, for example, I you know I spent most of my life in America without ever experiencing any overt anti-Semitism. And now since Trump started running for president in 2015, my Twitter feed, my email inbox, they're deluged with this, you know, anti-Semitic crap that, that, that has all of a sudden been legitimated somehow in, in, in our political discourse. And I just, you know, I feel like people like Trump are, as, as I said before, trying to redefine what makes an American. And I feel like they are trying to redefine people like me out of the American story because I was not born here.
0: Max, I found it interesting and you talk about growing up in a country that no longer exists um, in an ideology that is supposedly no longer practiced or if it ever was really practiced there. And One of the things I've always found fascinating about people, if you're in my generation, who come from places uh, like you did that they um, – as, as I was listening to you talk, I said, you know, I know you don't speak Russian anymore but when you uh, thought of communism and that system, I think that nietsposibbe uh, would be enough. Uh, you, that much I know you probably still speak, and that's no thank you for uh, people. Because, and you talk about neoconservatives, and my understanding of neo- neoconservativism through the eyes of somebody like a, a Pat Moynihan was a virulent opposition to. Soviet-style communism, communism in general, but particularly Soviet-style communism. And talk a little bit about that in
2: terms of your development as an intellectual and as a conservative and as a person. Well, my understanding of neoconservatism from its origins in the 1970s is that it was really a movement uh, to, to say that standing up for American ideals, standing up for human rights, standing up for democracy, all of that was critically important, that we should not be pursuing this amoral detente policy of the Soviet Union. We needed to stick up for our values, and that was, you know, something that President Nixon and Ford weren't doing, and even President Carter was not doing enough. And so, a lot of former Democrats became Reagan Republicans. I mean, I was never a former Democrat. I mean, I grew up as a, as a Reagan conservative in the 1980s, and I loved what what the Gipper had to say when he called out the Soviet Union as the evil empire. When he said, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall," that spoke to me. That was, you know, Ronald Reagan was championing the American aspiration for freedom. And that's what brought me to this country. I think that's what makes America great. And that's what made me a conservative and a Republican. So you can imagine my shock that we've gone from Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, to, you know, uh, Mr. Putin has been very strong in his denials. I mean, that is is quite a shocking turn of events where you have the most pro-Russian president in our history. And, you know, he's not some kind of liberal democratic pinko. He is an ostensibly conservative Republican.
0: Well, to that point, and and I, that's what I was hoping you would get to because I was fortunate when I worked for President Bush 43 um, that I got to prepare him for an interview he did with Frank Sesno of the History Channel on Ronald Reagan that was to be put in the can until uh, uh, President Reagan uh, passed away, which is what news organizations often do. And it was great to be able to prepare President Bush for that because I got to get insights into his thinking on Reagan and conservatism and some of them that didn't even make it into the final cut. And one of them was – I went to that speech and that point about uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall and President Bush 43 went into a rather lengthy and impassioned defense of moral clarity and how uh, President Reagan hadn't said, let's take down the first few bricks of that wall. He said, take the whole wall down and he went through the optimism and a lot of the things that you spoke of and both publicly and privately, President Bush would talk about those things and conservatism in that reading was an optimistic movement, was an was that shining city on the hill, mm-hmm. knowing that we hadn't gotten there yet. Um, and I'm always fascinated and it's a clip that we play around here a lot of, you know, I think there have been three consequential presidential farewell addresses in American history. I think obviously George Washington's far and away the most important one. The second one being Dwight Eisenhower's um, in 1960 and the third one I think is Ronald Reagan's uh, in 1989 where he – really defines Shining City on a Hill in a way that he hadn't, and he goes through um, a bunch of the attributes that it has, but he ends and he says, and if that city had to have walls, those walls had doors, and those doors were open to all who had the heart and the will to get here. That's how I saw it then, and that's how I still see it today. When did you and I, and did you in particular being the conservative thinker, start to first see that veering off from that Reagan optimistic Shining City on a Hill toward down Buchanan and Trump lanes.
2: I think it's been a, it's been a long, uh, slow decline, gradually picking up speed along the way. And you're right. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking to remember the kind of conservatism that Ronald Reagan championed, which was optimistic and inclusive. I mean, he often spoke of how much he valued immigrants. Remember in 1980, Ronald Reagan gave a speech with the Statue of Liberty as a backdrop in which he talked about making America great again. But he wasn't denouncing immigrants. He was praising them. So how did we become, the Republican Party become this dour, anti-immigrant party, uh, you know, full of of foreboding about the future instead of optimism about our ability to to handle this change? I mean, probably, I, I think the change probably started in the 1990s with the rise of Fox News, Newt Gingrich, the Republican takeover of Congress, and then, you know, accelerating. You can see the the post along the way with uh, the selection of Sarah Palin. One of the big mistakes that John McCain made. The rise of the Tea Party, uh, and you know the the kind of talk radio dominance of the Republican Party, where it's the fringe elements, what used to be considered the fringe elements, that are now very much in the center of the Republican Party, and and, and Donald Trump speaks to them in a, in a way that that they appreciate. And I think most Americans are rightly, rightly find that abhorrent.
1: Max, let's just briefly recap some of the elements of your career. You were uh, a young conservative at uh, uh, the University of California at at Berkeley, where you write that you took, uh, you loved making a bonfire out of Berkeley's liberal pieties. Just tell us a little bit about what it was like to be a young Republican in a famously liberal academic community like Berkeley.
2: Well I'm a I'm a born troublemaker so I I thrived in the in the Berkeley environment you know writing a conservative column for the Daily Californian I remember I once got a bullet in the mail that literally had my name taped on it and I thought that was that was pretty awesome I never referred them to the police I just enjoyed the 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 implied compliment that that I was getting on on the nerves of these left wingers at Berkeley uh and then you know I went from that into Uh, Well, I went to grad school. I worked a couple years at the Christian Science Monitor, and then after that, I went into uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial page. and And I thought that I'd arrived. This was nirvana. This was, uh, you know, the central place for conservative journalism in the 1990s. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I felt like when I was at at Berkeley, I was this very lonely voice uh, crying out in the wilderness. And you know, I felt like at the Wall Street Journal, all of a sudden, I had the megaphone of the largest. Uh, newspaper in America at the time and, and and a newspaper that really spoke for the conservative movement. And so I, I felt, you know, I, I I was really becoming kind of a made member of the conservative movement.
0: And Max, and to Gordon's question, and, and I make the joke about the bullet, but it's not obviously not funny given the environment we're in now. Is that when you started to see it turn from um, – you know, Tip O'Neill obviously has famously always been credited with the we're all friends after 5 p.m. type of political interaction and I saw it firsthand where you know, two of Moynihan's closest friends in the Senate were people like Bob Dole and of all things Bob Packwood um, before his fall. But there was a collegiality even among journalists, even among people who were different and again you note being sent things like a bullet. Is that when it started sort of the late – 80s, early 90s, when it started to get. I mean, you know, you talked uh, previously in the in the book about Buckley driving the kooks, and and that sort of intellectual conservatism devoid of of those of those nastier elements. Um, but is that when it started to turn in, at that point?
2: Well, I think there's always been the extremists in both the left and the right, and certainly at Berkeley, I was exposed to a lot of the left wing extremists, and I thought that they were very intolerant of debate and free speech. And, and I thought the Republican Party was the party that was supposed to be speaking up for the First Amendment and defending our rights. And of course, you know, now we have a Republican president who refers to the press as the enemy of the people, uh, which is kind of the mirror image of what a lot of these intolerant leftists were doing in in the late 80s, early 90s when I was in, in school. I, I mean, I do think that there has been a change in our politics in Washington, which I do think there have always been, you know, tough partisan debates. And you can point to those going back to the early 19th century. But I think after World War II, there was a more bipartisan era where so many of the people who served in Congress were all veterans. They felt they had something in common. They, they accomplished great things in the 50s and 60s. I think that lasted into the 1980s. Um, and I think in, you've seen the splintering of, of Washington ever since with the Republican Party going far to the right, uh, Democrats going to the left, not as far as Republicans have gone in one direction, but also moving to the left. And I think, you know, you've seen the rise of social media, talk radio, cable TV. It's become a shout fest. And there is very little room for that kind of uh, collegiality across partisan lines that I think used to be much more common and that we desperately need to revive today.
1: Max, you are a national security strategist, an expert, and a widely respected military historian. And one of the aspects of the corrosion of conservatism, which I found most compelling, was your willingness to acknowledge when you had a reappraisal of some of your positions. And the most dramatic reappraisal um, relates to the 2003 war in Iraq. And this puts you in a category of um, serious people that I um, think have um, made a contribution to our study of history by – revising their prior views. Robert McNamara famously wrote, we were wrong, terribly wrong about the war in Vietnam. McGeorge Bundy, who I wrote about, who was the national security advisor to JFK and LBJ, came to similar conclusions. And you write in your book, quote, I can finally acknowledge about the Iraq war. It was all a big mistake. What leads you to this particular conclusion?
2: Well, again, it's, it's you know, like a lot of things that I've rethought in recent years you know reality is kind of staring me in the face and and I can't deny it I think you know one of the things that's allowed me to come to grips with reality is the fact that I've left the ideological movement of the right and it makes me realize the extent to which being part of a political movement whether it's on the left or the right tends to uh shape your thinking and I think there's a real confirmation bias and an unwillingness to break with the reigning uh party orthodoxy because You know, uh, so many partisans put tribal loyalty above the dictates of truth and reason. And, you know, breaking from Trump, breaking from the Republican Party has made me, I think, much more willing and able to look at things afresh and and say, for example, oh, wait a second, global warming, that's a massive threat. Oh, wait a second. Uh, There's no reason why the United States should have the most liberal gun laws, in, in the Western world, it doesn't make sense. And it's also made me realize, hey, wait a second, the Iraq war was was a disaster and a mistake, and I regret my role uh, in supporting it. I mean, all this stuff is, is pretty obvious to me now, I think, uh, that I'm out of the Republican bubble. What's striking to me is how many Republicans basically refuse to acknowledge reality.
0: So, Max, you talk about those Republicans who refuse to see the war in Iraq as a mistake, like you I bear a more direct in a way of uh, responsibility in that I was in communications for President Bush in 2002 and all of 2003. And one of the things I would posit to you is that I do think it was a failure of communication to some degree on the administration's part and on the part of the White House. I prepared the president for the first interview that he did um, when it was clear we weren't going to find uh, WMD in Iraq. And I got to pick and we picked Britt Hume. Because uh, even though Britt was a Fox guy, he was pretty fair and he was tough on us when he thought he should be tough on us. But we knew we wouldn't – he wouldn't uh, really hammer us that hard. And when you do a briefing like that for a president, you sit in the um, – in this case, the president's dining room right off the oval. And he sits across and you role play the interview. And President Bush was always a good sport about staying in character and the chief of staff's there and Dr. Rice is there and time process – at the time, Press Secretary Scott McClellan, Dan Bartlett, Communications Director, Senior Advisor, and I'm asking the questions. and We get to the WMD question and the president says, when I go back to my decision to go to war in Iraq and to pursue the weapons of mass destruction that we believe that Saddam Hussein had, I go back to September 14th, 2001. And this is one of the reasons I think where it got conflated of – why were we in Iraq and even Sarah Palin thought it was retribution for 9-11. But uh, he went through and he said that um, he met with the families um, and friends who would lost loved ones on 9-11. He was scheduled to be there an hour, was there almost six. And they all – there was a common refrain whether they would lost somebody who was a high-priced trader at Cantor Fitzgerald or a dishwasher at Windows on the World. They all made him promise one thing, that he would never stand in another pile of rubble again over the bodies of 3,000 dead Americans. And he said, when I when I went back to my desk that next Monday and looked at the threats facing this country, and he went into the case against Saddam Hussein, and it looks like we made a mistake, but given my responsibility at the time, given the information I had, I would do it again. But we were clearly wrong. Before he finished his answer, Dr. Rice said, uh, Mr. President, if you say that, Tony Blair's government will fall in a week. This was, this was September of 2003. And Dan Bartlett starts to speak and this is why Andy Card was a great chief of staff. I didn't – Dan Bartlett said, I totally agree with Dr. Rice and Andy Card. I didn't even get a chance to speak. Andy saw me speak and he said, um, boys and girls, I think this is a good time to take a break. Let's go out. Uh, you guys go out in the hall. Mr. President, you have that phone call to make. We'll reconvene in 10 minutes. And we went out in the hall and I sort of message-wise said, I said, Dan, what was wrong with that answer? And that's a great answer and it's true. But that was his position and that was what he was willing to say in that interview. And I think if George W. Bush had said that – In September of 2003, that the American people would understand and we would be in a different place. And I just say that because I think it's an important story to tell in the context of we were wrong because I agree with you. I think that we were wrong. But do you think it was as much a strategic blunder as it was a failure to properly communicate what we were trying to do and why we were trying to do it?
2: I think it was a strategic blunder. I think it was a well intentioned strategic blunder i don 't buy there's you know all these conspiracy theories on the left about it was a war for oil, a war for Halliburton, a war of retribution for George h w Bush all sorts of you know crazy theories. I think the reality is, as you said, I think there was a psychological imperative that President Bush felt after nine eleven to protect America, and there was faulty intelligence which suggested that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. I mean this was not you know, invented by the Bush administration. Uh, It was not just the mistake of the CIA. Every Western intelligence agency reached the same conclusion. So I think it was a mistake that was made in good faith. Nevertheless, I'm brought back to before the invasion. I remember when I was the op-ed editor of The Wall Street Journal, and I published a controversial piece by Brent Scowcroft saying, don't depose Saddam Hussein. And you know, President Bush did not appreciate having his father's national security advisor offer this advice in public. It was noted in the building, as we right. like to say it. Exactly. <laughs> i Exactly. They didn't appreciate it. And I disagreed with it at the time. I was dismissive of that. But in hindsight, I'm saying, damn, I wish I'd listened to Brent Scowcroft because he is a genuinely wise man and he had great insights uh, about – American foreign policy. And I think the, the big lesson that I take away from that is we need to be more prudent and cautious in our use of military power, and we should stay away from preventative conflicts, which is something that I defended uh, during the time of the Iraq War. But in hindsight, I think was a grievous mistake and one that I do think we, we should learn lessons from.
1: Brent Scowcroft, of course, was the National Security Advisor to President Bush 41, and was one of his principal counselors during the Gulf War of 1990 to 91, where uh, the United States successfully created this massive international coalition to drive Iraq out of Kuwait, but made a very deliberate decision
2: not to invade or occupy Iraq. At the time, I, with a lot of other people on the right, thought that was a mistake to leave Saddam Hussein in power. And it was galling to see him mastering, massacring the Kurds and the Shia after we had defeated him in the Gulf War. But in hindsight, I realize, you know, President Bush 41, Scowcroft, Baker, those guys, they actually knew what they were doing. And Max, Gordon talked a little bit about this in your background.
0: But in terms of strategically going forward, we obviously went through a cold war that we had believed we'd won somewhere in 91, 92, believed that there was affirmation of that victory. And now, obviously, we've gone back. And again, I don't mean the merits of the Russian interference in the election, but I just mean the strategic threat of a Russia that the the leader of that country wants to return to its glory. I'm not sure when he thinks it was great, but he wants to return that. And the fact that we have, because of the domestic political situation, a president who refuses to acknowledge that and rejects it, and then, as you said, um, attacks these alliances, are, are they a threat and, and what are the dangers – in, in ignoring it and going down the road of Trump foreign policy.
2: I think Russia is a threat. I mean, remember, they they still have uh, the second largest nuclear arsenal in the world. They have growing military power. They're projecting power into the Middle East in a way that even the Soviet Union was not able to do. And they're undermining Western democracies uh, by uh, sponsoring uh, populist leaders from uh, – Victor Orban in Hungary to Donald Trump in the United States, but I think the threat really actually goes beyond Russia because I think Russia is only one manifestation of the larger threat that we face that in 1991 nobody could have anticipated which is the rise of this autocratic populism, which is challenging democracies all around the world. You know, when I was graduating from college in 1991, that was when Frank Fukuyama was writing about the end of history, claiming that everybody was going to be a good liberal Democrat from now on. And sadly, it hasn't worked out that way. Instead, what we are now facing, I think, is the greatest challenge to democracy in our lifetimes, which is coming from within the democracies in places like Poland and Hungary and Italy, Uh, The United States, the Philippines, you've already seen democracies destroyed in places like Turkey and Russia. This, you know, democracies under threat in in places like uh, France and Germany, where you see the rise of extremist parties in a way that you did not before, the collapse of the center. I mean, this is a, a massive challenge to this Western liberal democratic order that we have taken for granted during our lifetimes. I mean, the way a friend of mine put it, actually, I thought was pretty instructive, where he said, Uh, You know, in the past, uh, uh, we've we've kind of taken democracy for granted. And now we actually have the privilege of fighting for democracy in a way that our forefathers did. But we never thought we would have to.
1: Max, this leads us to your prescription, your hope, the conclusion of your book, where you make a very forceful admonition for American politics and American foreign policy to return to what you call, quote unquote, the vital center. And I was found that very compelling and the, our listeners should know that this is a concept that was originally uh, developed by the famous public intellectual um, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. in his famous 1949 book called The Vital Center, which argued for the preservation of liberal democracy in its global contest with totalitarian fascism and communism. Obviously, a, a dramatically different uh, historical era, but we feel – today that we we're grappling with some of the same challenges. What does the vital center mean to you exactly seven years after Schlesinger wrote about it?
2: Well I could, you know, list off my, my policy views, which I put in the book and, you know, I'm basically pretty fiscally conservative, socially liberal. I believe we have to address global warming. I believe, you know, America should be a beacon to the world. We need a, a, a foreign policy that leads. I believe in free trade. So you can list all these things which, you know, are I, I think are views that make sense. Obviously, I think they make sense if I hold them. Uh, But individually, those views generally tend to poll pretty well. I mean, Americans are in favor of addressing global warming. They're in favor of gun control. They're in favor of of reducing uh, federal debt. They're in favor of American leadership when when you put the questions in that way. But there is not really a party that represents that whole Uh, uh, set of policy preferences with the Republicans being driven very far to the nationalist populist right and Democrats increasingly going to the Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. And so I feel like I am really politically homeless right now. There's really nobody among the major parties who speaks for my views. And I think there's a lot of people who feel that way. And that's, I think it's imperative to revitalize that center of American politics. Otherwise, you're going to see this uh, continuing uh, slide into extremism. And I think that is going to be catastrophic for American democracy going forward. I think we need to try to get some bipartisan, sensible agreement. It's just very, very hard to do in this kind of political environment. And, you know, social media is a huge problem for centrism today because, you know, there are no moderate trolls. There's all these trolls who are representing the extremes. Who's speaking up for the centrism, for moderation. That's, you know, I'm trying to do that. Others are trying to do that. And that's an important point, Max. In 1970, Richard Nixon
0: proposed something called the Family Assistance Plan. Now, that policy included a guaranteed income. It was what, what today is railed even in the center of the Democratic Party as extreme on the uh, Ocasio-Cortez wing. But if there's something that Richard Nixon 50 years ago proposed, are we really talking about something that is radical, something that is loony, something that is all those things? Or is this just we are in a highly charged, led by –
2: from the top, rhetorical extremism as opposed to policy extremism? I think we're seeing both rhetorical as well as policy extremism. I mean certainly you know, Donald Trump talking about Democrats as being traitors who want to turn America into Venezuela. I mean, that is crazy talk. That is not how a president should be talking about the opposition. And, of course, Trump also says he wants to lock up the opposition, which, again, is not how any normal Democratic president talks. But I think that, you know, he has kind of provoked a reaction from the Democrats. And I think that they are themselves propounding ideas uh, that are not well thought out, just like some of Donald Trump's own proposals.
0: Max Boot, uh, the book is called The Corrosion of Conservativism, Why I Left the Right?, it's on Audible. It is a wonderful listen. Max reads it himself. Um, how was that process um, in terms of reading your
2: own book? How many hours did it take? And would you do it again? It was harder than I imagined. It's, it's, it actually gave me a lot of respect for people who read books on tape. I mean, that is a real skill set. And it, it took a couple of days. And, you know, I got into the swing of it. But, you know, it's not just a question of reading. You got to have the proper emphasis and and enunciation. And, you know, the director would, would stop me every once in a while and say, that's slurry. And so I grew to hate the word slurry over the course of those two days.
0: <laughs> well, Max Boot, you are a great thinker. You are a great writer. Um, I love listening to your book. Um, I, I can't wait for the next one. And anybody who wants to understand, like I think many of us do, uh, how we got here and perhaps in hopes of finding our way out of the wilderness needs to um, pick up um, or download the audible copy of the corrosion of conservatism. Uh, And we also want to thank uh, Dr. Goldstein for being our wingman today. Thank you very much. Great pleasure. Thanks. Thank you both. Come back soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter
2: on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.